Now, as you may have gathered um, at the start uh, by the question I asked, uh, Sarah, and I, Sarah and I enjoy watching things together. It's one of those things that we, we try and make time for each week. So most weeks we have an evening where we'll try to get the kids to bed in a sort of semi-reasonable time, sit down uh, and watch a, a couple of episodes of whatever it is that we're watching at the time. Um, and I, I personally can find that television can be really, really helpful. Um, it can be helpful because it can give us an insight into the world that we live in. You get to see people and, and start to think about, well, what makes people like that? and Why do they think like that? You start to understand things that maybe you wouldn't understand without it in the same way as you do with, with any stories. It can also prompt us to think about things that we wouldn't otherwise think about. Uh, we, might, we might think about something because it's been brought up that actually we've never really considered before. One of the uh, series that Sarah and I have uh, enjoyed watching over the past few years has been um, the series The Crown on Netflix. I don't know how many people have watched it, but I think it's fairly widely watched. Um, so so you, you may have watched it. It's the story of, uh, it basically follows the life of Queen Elizabeth uh, II, um, so our current queen, uh, over the period um, of her kind of um, reign. And... Um, and one of the episodes in this is set in 1969. Um, and uh, it follows primarily not, not the Queen, but it, it follows Prince Philip. Uh, and, and it follows him as he engages with the story of the moon landing. Um, so so he, he is there watching this great event unfold on television, along with kind of millions of people around the world. Um, and, and as he, he watches it, he begins to feel this sense of dissatisfaction about his own life. He starts to think, well, these guys have been to the moon and what have I achieved? Like, what have I actually done with my life? He starts to feel like, has his life just been wasted? Has he basically been put in a corner, married to the queen, un unable to do anything else and just like now just kind of like not really achieved anything? All the things he could have done just not really happen. And he gets a chance to meet Neil Armstrong and all that crowd uh, and he meets with them and he's there thinking, you know, these guys have, have achieved greatness and I, and I just haven't done anything. And there's a, there's a point in this episode where he's, he's in, in a plane where just him and the pilot they're in this plane together and he asked if he can take the controls he is actually a pilot himself so it's not just like some random bloke saying can i drive your plane um but he, he asked if he can take control of the plane and and the the pilot hands over control to him and he starts he starts bringing the plane higher and higher and higher uh, just taking it higher and higher until until he gets to the point where the plane is beginning to shake and the pilot next to him is getting increasingly worried. He's like, this plane is now a lot higher than it was ever designed to go, than it was ever safe to go. And so this plane's going higher and higher and it comes out above the clouds and you see this incredible view. And, and as the pilot panics, then, then Prince Philip is saying to him, yeah, yeah, but just look, just look. And, and as you see this scene, Prince Philip just turns to him and says, says yes, this plane is, is higher than it's ever uh, designed to go, but at least we've lived. At least we've lived. And I've thought about that scene a lot. I, 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 it's, I mean, I must have watched it a year ago. I don't know when it came out, but I guess it was about a year ago. I must have watched it a year ago. And that scene just keeps coming back to me because it raises an interesting question, I think. And that question is, what does it mean to live? You see, that, that's the question that, that you're forced to kind of wrestle with as, as, as you see him wrestling with that question. What does it mean to actually live? Because... I mean, he was, technically, he was alive before he took that plane to an unsafe height. 
you know, if there'd been a doctor on board, then I think he would have said, he would have, you know, taken out his whatever you do to check if someone's alive. And he would have confirmed that he was equally alive before he'd taken that plane really high as he was when he had taken it, it, it really high. And yet for him, he clearly felt there was a difference between simply being alive and living. And I reckon that's probably something most of us can engage with. I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, you may, you may never have thought like that or you may never have, have kind of uh, felt like that. But I guess, I guess a lot of us can, can ex think of times where we sort of experience, yeah, I'm, I'm alive, but I don't really feel like I'm living. I mean, how many of us over these past few months, uh, as we've had various lockdowns and limitations, have felt like our life's been put on hold? Have had times where we just feel like, I'm just, I'm just, my life's on hold. Yes, I'm alive, but that feeling that we're just going through the motions, that we're failing to merely live. So, we come to John 11. The, the passage that Michelle just read for us. One of the great stories of Jesus' life. Uh, and what, what is the story? Well, well it's the story of, of, of death and life. One of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, is sick. He's merely sick. And his sisters are worried about him. If you've ever had a, a, a really sick relative, you know what it's like to be really worried about them. Uh, and so they, they send for Jesus. They know Jesus, they've experienced him healing people before. And so they send him, they say, Jesus, come, our brother Lazarus is sick. But Jesus doesn't go. Well, at least for two days, he doesn't go. It's not like he quickly like, oh, Lazarus is ill, get the down tools and, and head over. He doesn't go. But then eventually, two days later, he says, okay, let's go. He says to the disciples, let's go. But his disciples are worried because they're saying, well, wait a minute. Last time we were in Judea, they were trying, the people that were trying to kill you. So, so you're really going to go back there? I mean, it could, it, it could result in your death. But Jesus insists on going back. He says, I need to go back because Lazarus is sleeping and, and he needs waking up. His disciples are confused by this uh, because uh, they say, well, if he's asleep, he'll just wake up, won't he? So Jesus explains that he was sort of using a picture language. Lazarus is dead. And so they head back to Judea and, and his disciples go with him. Although they do, they do kind of know, we'll go back with him, even if it's just to die with him. So, you know, a, a slightly kind of foreboding tone there. They arrive. Lazarus is already well dead. One of the sisters says to Jesus, look, if you'd been here, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. And they go on, they have this conversation. They go to the tomb and this tomb is surrounded by grieving and mourning. Jesus himself weeps as he observes it. Jesus asks for the stone to be taken away. He prays to his father. He calls Lazarus to come out. And Lazarus comes out. That, that's the story. That, that's what we have here. And it's in the middle of that story that Jesus utters the words that we're going to look at this week. He says this about himself. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus in his own words. Who does Jesus say he is? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, what is it that we learn about Jesus from those words? What is it that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to as he says that's who he is? Why are those words so central to an understanding of, of who Jesus is? Well, 
we're just going to briefly unpack them this evening. Just going to have a little chat about, okay, what, what is going on there? What, what is he getting at? Uh, and, then, and then we're going to try and think through, okay, so what might that mean, mean for us? Now, in order to understand the significance of, of those words, we first have to allow ourselves to engage with the horror of death. The, the vast majority of this passage is dominated by death and sorrow. It's not until very late on in the, in the, in the passage that you get any hint of hope and life in it. You know, if you think about it, it starts with, with Lazarus being ill and his friends and family being concerned for his life. And so you've got that, the, the fear of death. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, that, the fear that someone close to you could die. I remember, I remember having it once. Um, I may have told you this before, but when I was in Leeds, I remember having that, that, that sense very, very specifically, as it turned out, entirely unnecessarily, uh, because Sarah had been to the doctor and then the doctor had rang her up and said, I'm going to call around at your house this afternoon. And I'm like, wait a minute, something must be seriously up if the doctor is calling around at your house this afternoon afternoon after you've just been to see him this morning so I'm there cycling home from work like crying my eyes like out thinking Sarah's gonna die how am I gonna cope and it turns out that the doctor's just like super helpful and wants to like drop off a prescription or something but anyway it was entirely unnecessary but I don't know if you, you know what it's like to, to have that kind of fear that someone close to you could die the desperation of it that sense of helplessness and so so it starts you've got this fear of death around and then, and then you've got the fact that for Jesus going back would be risking his own life. So you've got that kind of element of doing like self-preservation, do up fear about your own death, about your own safety. Not only fear of loved ones dying, but but what what if I die? What if something happens to me? And when he does decide to go back, then his disciples say slightly morosely, "Well, we'll go back with him, even if it's just to die with him." You've got this depressing prospect of a noble death. You know, like that drink with me scene from uh, the musical Les Mis. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know they're going to die, but they're just going to do it anyway. Uh, you've got that kind of, that, that's going on in here as well. And then, and then when Jesus arrives, you've got just the aftermath of death, just all the devastation that that death has brought. Grief and, and loss, sorrow, people weeping. Mary's weeping, those around her are weeping. Even Jesus is weeping. You can't read this passage without getting some sense of the devastation which death brings, of the way it impacts us, the fear of it happening to others, the fear of it happening to ourselves, the, the loss that we, we experience when it does happen, the grief and sorrow that comes along with it. You know, by the time they're there, Lazarus's body has already begun to decay. There's the stench of death in the air. His family and friends are faced with the reality of a life without Lazarus, with all the pain and sorrow and loss which that entails. You see, you read this and you can't help but be reminded, death is a very real and very powerful enemy. It has stood against all that people have been able to throw against it throughout all of history and it's been undefeated. It is the great undefeated enemy of humanity. Into that scene, this scene dominated by death, Jesus enters. And what we have now is a great standoff. 
we're at, we're at the final scene of High Noon or The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, except there's only two of them. So not really The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, but High Noon or, or The Lion King, you know, Simba versus Scar. You're at that scene, you know, you've got this great standoff. Two great powers facing each other. And this time it's not, it's not, you know, Simba and Scar, it's not, it's not the good guy and the bad guy. This is literally life versus death. Jesus, who has just described himself as the resurrection and the life, strolls out onto the battlefield against this great enemy. You see, you've got to, you've got to realize Jesus doesn't simply describe himself as someone who will bring life. Now, Jesus says, I am life. He is life. And so as he stands at Lazarus's tomb, we have life standing against death. So who's going to win the fight? How is this going to end? Humanity's great enemy, the one who has reigned undefeated for millennia versus life itself. The, 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 kind of, the scene is set for this epic showdown, but what actually happens is something of an anticlimax. Because what happens is Jesus stands there and he tells Lazarus to come out and death is defeated. It's like it's the ultimate non-event of a fight. I mean, there just isn't even a contest. Jesus just says the words and death, death runs away from Lazarus's body and life flows back into it. Now, why is that? Why is it that there isn't even a contest here? Why is it that Jesus can just speak the words and where there was death, now there is life? Well, it's because life always beats death. Let, let, let me, it's a bit like what Michael was saying a couple of weeks ago. Just as light always beats, beats darkness, because darkness is simply the absence of light, so life will always beat death, because death is simply the absence of life. Jesus has power over death, not simply because he's really strong. So it's not like, oh, I can defeat death because I'm so strong. He ultimately has power over death because he is life. He couldn't not have power over death any more than light could not have power over darkness. As I've been working through this series of Jesus in his own words, I've been trying to, I've been really trying to go back to what is it Jesus actually says about himself? I've been trying to cut away, you know, what do I think are the central things about Jesus versus what is it that Jesus says about himself? And there's been two things that have struck me as I've looked through all of the things that we've looked at in the past weeks and that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And I talked, I talked about one of them last week. And that was that repeatedly Jesus points us to the cross as the place where we finally see who he is. So, so that was true in the bread of life when he talks about how is when his body is broken, his blood is spilt. That's when we'll kind of understand what it means for him to be the bread of life. He, he talks about it in the light of the world where he talks about his body needed to be lifted up so people will see him. He talks about it in the good shepherd when he talks about it needing to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, the same is true here. We see Jesus most clearly as the resurrection and the life at the cross. Because there we see him take death, death's attack 
with all of its force and we see it completely incapable of holding him down. I am, um, uh, you, you'll find this, you'll find this hard to believe, but in, in meetings at work, sometimes I can be a little bit chatty. Like, so sometimes I just like, I just feel like I just want to want to say stuff. And, and I had a, I had a meeting a, a few weeks ago at work where I just at the end of it just thought, man, I definitely talked too much in that meeting. Uh, and, and so I, I thought, I, you know, I, going into the next week's meeting, I thought, right, this, this week's meeting, I'm just going to sit back. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let other people speak. I'm just going to listen. I'm going to have a week off just so that people can recognize that I'm not somebody who always needs to speak. But, but the problem is that like five minutes into it, I've got 20 things I want to say and I just can't help myself. I just like, I find myself talking all over again. I'm like, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And have you thought about this thing? You see, I might try and hold it down. I might try and like not allow myself to be that person who just has to talk all the time, but I just can't suppress it. it I've, I've literally, I've, I do it at book club as well for those who haven't read the book club. Even if I haven't read the book, I'm like, I haven't read the book, so I'm not going to talk. Five minutes into it, I'm like, right, here are, here are five thoughts I have about what you're talking about, despite the fact I haven't even read the book. So, so I just, I can try and hold it down. I can go in with the intention of, of suppressing it, but it just bursts out of me. I, I just can't, I feel like I can't help myself. That's how it is with Jesus and death, okay? The, the cross might be able to come and death might, might be able to like suppress Jesus for like a little bit, but ultimately he's life and you just can't hold it down. It's going to burst out because he is life. You can't suppress it. It can't be held in. It's who he is. He can't not be that. And so the cross, death may be able to come and it may be able to suppress him for a few hours. But ultimately, Jesus' life, and that's going to break through. It's always going to break out. And so that's the first thing that I find so striking about the way Jesus talks about himself is the way he's always pointing to the cross and saying, that's where ultimately you see who I am. But the second thing uh, which strikes me when you look at Jesus in his own words, across all of these that we're going to look at, is how central the idea of being life is to how Jesus describes himself. I was, I was, I've had my mind blown by that as I've gone through this. If there's one element of who Jesus is that he emphasizes again and again when he says, I am this, it's that he's life. I mean, just so, so a few weeks ago, we, we, at the start of this, we looked at him saying, I'm the bread. But what, he's the bread of what? He's the bread of life. And the whole emphasis there is that without the bread, there isn't life. With the bread, there is. He describes himself as life. He describes himself as the light of the world. But what does he say? He says, those who walk in him will have the light of life. That light is synonymous with life. Again, he's describing himself as life. In, in, when he describes himself as the good shepherd or the gate, uh, at that point he says, those who believe in me will have life and have it to the full. He's again focusing in on life. Here, in this, in this section, he describes himself as the resurrection and the life. In a couple of weeks, he's going to say, I'm the way, the truth and the life. He's going to keep coming back and saying, if there's one idea that is through all of the ways that he talks about himself, is that he is life. Now, there's, there's an obvious question that I guess springs to our minds uh, as we think about that, which is, if Jesus is life and life beats death, then why is there so much death still around? Like, why every day do we hear the latest figure for the number of people who've died of COVID? 
Why has every human being who has ever lived died? If life beats death, and Jesus' life, why is there so much death? And I think this is where Jesus' words are so helpful. Because he doesn't just give us actions here. He doesn't just kind of raise Lazarus from the dead and say, that's who I am, work it out for yourself. He gives us words to help us interpret those actions. Look again at how Jesus describes himself in verse 25. Verse 25, this kind of central, Jesus' central declaration about himself in the middle of this section. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now this is a series about trying to understand who Jesus is by looking at how he describes himself. And actually Jesus himself says that this whole scenario plays out this way for God's glory and so that God's son will be glorified, so that he will be glorified. So this story of Lazarus is all about helping us to understand more about who Jesus is and why he's glorious. So Lazarus actually acts as an illustration for us all. You see, this is what Jesus is saying here, and it's crucial that we understand this. The life Jesus brings comes through death because it comes through resurrection. You can't be resurrected if you don't die. Like resurrection only comes when you die. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying that there has to be a death before you experience that life. And then he explicitly says it after that, doesn't he? The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Just as Jesus brought life into Lazarus's body when he had died, so it is with us. We die and then Jesus brings resurrection and life. We die and are raised and then enjoy the fullness of life which Jesus brings. You see, this is important. The, the life that Jesus brings isn't a you get to dodge death kind of life. That's not what he's bringing. No, it's an entirely different life which we enjoy through resurrection from the dead. This is what Jesus says. And then as he goes to Lazarus's tomb and raises him from the dead, he demonstrates that he's actually able to deliver on that promise. Now, that, that might sound obvious to, to, to you, and, and if it does, then I apologise. But I think it actually has quite significant implications in, in numerous areas of life. You see, it's only if we understand that, if we understand why Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life, that we can really understand what Jesus means when he says he's life, that we can really understand what he means when he says he's the one who has power over death. Because the life Jesus brings is not simply more of the same. It's not that we get to do what we're doing now forever. No, the life which Jesus brings is a life which puts to death our current life, which is plagued by death in so many ways. You see, the impact of death is not just seen in physical death. It's seen in the illnesses and sicknesses which plague us. It's seen in the anxiety and worry which haunt our steps. 
It's seen in the fear which death brings about. It's seen in the relationship breakdowns which rob us of life. It's seen in that sense so many of us have so much of the time that whilst we're breathing, we're not truly living. That's where we feel the pinch of death. Now, Jesus comes to bring a life without any of that, a life untouched by death. And that's why that life has to come through resurrection. We first have to die to our current life so we can enjoy his life. That's what happens when we believe in Jesus. We die to our old way of life, the way which rejects the source of life and so inevitably brings death. We stop going it alone and we instead come to know Jesus. We ask for his forgiveness. We reconnect with life itself. And you see, what happens there is that we start seeing the fruit of death being replaced by the fruit of life. Hatred is increasingly replaced by love. Gossip is increasingly replaced by words of encouragement. Envy is increasingly replaced by joy. Discord is increasingly replaced by peace. You see, old life dies. We're raised to new life. Fruit of death diminishes. Fruit of life grows. You see, we're, we're all searching for life. We're all searching for a life where we're not constantly dogged by death, where the fear of death, the impact of death, the limitations of death do not plague us. What, whatever you believe here tonight, my guess is that you know what it's like to feel shortchanged by life. To feel like this life isn't all that I thought life would be. Well, that's because this life isn't all that life was supposed to be. But Jesus offers us that life. And all we have to do is come to him and believe. That's what he says. Uh, the one who believes in me, though he die, will live. Now, you, 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 might, you might be someone here who doesn't follow Jesus, who's thinking about it, exploring it, unsure what you think. And you might doubt what I'm saying here. You might think Jesus is not going to bring me a full life. Jesus is going to control me. He's going he's gonna to limit me. He's going to make my life small and not bigger. You may doubt that what I'm saying could possibly be true. You might think, I look at Christians, they seem less alive, not more alive. I want to encourage you, Jesus will not, will not limit your life. He will not diminish your life. Yes, he will change it. He will transform it. But he will not make you less alive because it's death in its various forms that does that. It's depression and sin and evil and relationship breakdown and sickness and death. That's what does that. That's what makes you feel less alive. That's what makes you feel like you've been cheated in life. Jesus is the only one able to stand against those things. He's the only one who's actually been able to stand up to death and say, I am more alive than you are death. You may, you, you may be someone who would say, yeah, I, I do follow Jesus, but you may just have lost sight of this. 
You may have lost sight of the idea that Jesus is life. You might have found yourself increasingly pursuing life somewhere else. Pursuing life in your, your work or in certain relationships or in the pursuit of uh, kind of material things or in, in a hobby or in any number of things. You might, you might even have found yourself pursuing life in many different places. Uh, but if you're honest with yourself, you may also find yourself feeling disappointed in those things. You may find that actually you don't feel more alive. You're still, you're still pursuing those things. But if you're honest with yourself, you feel less alive, not more alive from it. You just need to remember what Jesus says here. He is the life. It's believing in him that brings you into that life. So pursue that now. Start enjoying that now. Now, now I'm not saying follow Jesus and your, your life will be free from pain, suffering and any hints of death. Because it's only going to be partial now. Because while spiritually we, we can enjoy and experience elements of this new life now, we can see it bearing fruit in us now. We can see hatred increasingly being uh, replaced by love and, and all those things we talked about earlier. The, the reality is we have to physically die before we're raised to new physical life. We'll have life even though we die. You see, it's then at physical resurrection that we'll finally enjoy the, the completely full life that Jesus offers, both physical and spiritual. That life that we long for, a life with no more sickness, no more tears, no more death. A life where we will finally experience the true life we, we talked about at the start. The life where we finally feel like we're truly living the life that we were created for. The life that Prince Philip is trying to find by taking a plane dangerously high. That we're all desperately looking for, however you're looking for it. It's there that we'll be able to find that. You see, the human condition is that we believe that life is found apart from God. But unfortunately, apart from God, there's nothing but death. That's where humanity went wrong at the very beginning. It's where the Bible story begins. And here at the story of Lazarus, we see Jesus standing there and saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Come to me and find the life you were created for.